0: You're listening to the Curious About Cannabis podcast. Hey everybody, this is Jason Wilson with the Curious About Cannabis podcast. Uh, Thanks for tuning in again. Um, Today I am in a beautiful location that, uh, for those of you that get to see some of the video from this, you'll get to see some of the surroundings, but I am at uh, a hemp farm, Hillside Hemp, um, with my friend Sam Moore, who's a hemp farmer and is um, trying to implement uh, more sustainable hemp cultivation practices to help build the soil, um, help support the local ecology here. And uh, this is our first um, in-field interview, Um, so this will be a little bit of an experiment. A lot of nice farm ambient um, sound around us that I hope you'll enjoy. Uh, Thanks so much, Sam, for joining me and chatting about hemp farming and whatever else we end up talking about
1: yeah thanks for having me or thanks for coming out
0: yeah totally yeah so leading up to this interview we we spent some time getting some hemp plants in the ground um this summer and i'm just surrounded i mean how many plants um do you have in the ground right now
1: uh about 4,400 plants get another seven or eight hundred in this afternoon after after this interview yeah should be all done for the year
0: is that across, like, a few acres, or how many acres is that?
1: It's uh, it's approximately two acres of hemp cultivation, um, and it'll be about 5,000 plants in total, um, which is a little higher-density planting than in some other uh, farms that you might see around. Um, there's a few different reasons about that. We can talk about that when we get into it.
0: Sure, yeah. Um, so, yeah, let's just jump into all of that. So... Um, You mentioned before we got this going, this uh, recording going, that, you know, your main focus is trying to figure out how to cultivate cannabis in a more sustainable way, how to take care of the soil, improve the land you're on. So can you just kind of describe when you're thinking about setting up the farm? uh, Because I've been to several different hemp farms and yours is very unique just in how it's laid out. I noticed there's no plastic um on the ground um you've got rows that are on contour along the hills um um and kind of um not necessarily contiguous fields it's kind of broken up where things kind of best fit rather than kind of forcing things in place um so you can you just share kind of your thought process on your farm planning and then we can kind of get into some of the practices that you implement and all of that sure
1: yeah um so for me it's really a uh just hemp is just one more piece of a holistic uh, farm management approach Um, this farm is uh, a family farm that will be in my family uh, for many generations and so ultimately it's just about um, stewarding that in the best way possible for you know my children and maybe their children um, after that so um, you know that approach uh, we've been on here for about eight years and um, you know there were quite a bit uh, established here before um, you know the opportunity with hemp came about so I mean we're looking at um, a little bit of a slow to establish food forest with different fruit and nut trees um, you know berry vines a lot of it swallowed up by blackberry right now <laughs> um, but um, You know this whole farm is about five acres but there was never really a thought in my mind about ripping everything else out that's established Mm. um, just to plant as much hemp as possible Um, and so that was kind of why we see the layout Um, it's kind of working within the existing parameters Um, it's nice to have different uh, sections with windbreaks Um, I also am fascinated by you know the the different soil structure that we've developed in different areas based on um, you know the rotation of crops so yeah. since i've farmed it for the last eight years i know which plots have gone through what phases uh, different vegetables um, different cover crop mixes um, some spots that are uh, newly cultivated um, some that have been intensively vegetable farmed well not super intensive but um, more heavily um, and then uh, when we do walk around the farm after this, you'll notice that there's essentially five different, um, kind of structures in each of the, each plot that we'll see, um, where I'm kind of just trying different things to see, uh, what works, um, and kind of what we can get away with. Um, so yeah, that's kind of yeah little
0: about that. And what what kind of patterns have you noticed as far as the soil structure, like you said, in the areas where you've done more vegetable farming versus others that haven't been touched as much? What are you seeing? Um, well, so, you know,
1: it's hard to know for sure if we can draw direct correlations to all things. Um, yeah. But, uh, you know, the one section that's been farmed the longest does have the highest, uh, like, soil pest pressure pressure mm. uh, there's a, a population of uh, what are called gardens and philans which is a rather large um, kind of centipede looking guy that um, doesn't mind eating fresh uh, roots of plants it's not the only thing it likes to eat but when there is a, an abundance of that food and not a lot of other things that's what it likes to get into and so we noticed that really heavy uh, last year Um, and um, one thing I immediately noticed is that um, within that section there was a few areas where um, I had more companion plants than in others Um, I did a Mm. lot of um, uh, bush beans corn potatoes um, throughout those sections as well like intermittent row crops And, um, and then there was a few breaks where I kind of, you know, ran out of corn and potatoes and, um, never got around to, to establishing other companions. And those areas were more heavily affected by that, that pest pressure. Um, a possible assumption is that there was nothing else for that pest to eat besides that. Um, and then in the other areas, you know, the, the presence was still there, but you could identify those pests were also you know interacting with other plants. And so uh, with some phylon in particular, um, they can stunt a small plant, but once the roots get established, they usually can outcompete it, um, which is why you know planting little bigger plants a little later, but also just like giving that something else mm-hmm. to, to to eat on.
0: What are, uh, what are some of the other pests that you're commonly having to encounter? um out here on this farm and particularly when with your hemp farming what are you running into um well um let's see
1: i i see what you know we can call them pests i see you know, right bugs right. um i don't animals get, yes overall <laughs> um there's i kind of come from you know a mindset of there's an acceptable level of that mm-hmm. and um you know, one of the reasons I farm in the way I, I do is um, by keeping the overall, um, you know, cost and energy of the farming as low as possible allows me to take uh, maybe a little bit more acceptable loss or, or flexibility there. Um, mm, so you
0: don't have to get so worked up. About, true. Yeah. yeah.
1: Um, but, um, you know, in the hemp plants, I'll see aphids, um, maybe some spider mites. Um, you know, the thing that probably causes the biggest dent for me is, um, you know, subterranean mammals, um, <laughs> digger squirrels, moles, yeah, yeah. Um, voles and gophers. I have all four of those bastards. Um, yeah. And the thing is, you know, i they're not particularly attacking the plants. Right. It's just that their, you know, habitat happens to interfere with the plant's ability to, to sometimes produce, um, you know, grow bigger the roots run into air pockets mm-hmm. um and they self-prune s- when they yeah. Do that. yeah squirrels love to chew on drip irrigation lines and cr- create a little bit of headache there um which is one of the reasons in the back uh, lot um we'll notice there's a lot of um habitat for them to exist uh besides the cultivated rows. um it left large stands of cover crop um to mature and go to seed Gives them an alternate food source. Mm. Um, I've also seen um, gopher snakes uh, out there mm-hmm. as well. Gives them a habitat. Yep. Um, and then we have a nesting pair of uh, cooper hawks um, oh, that nice. are on this uh, in this area. And so I um, feel like, you know, overall that's what that is. I do do um, some some, you know, integrative pest management, the strategy is basically while they're all contained in a greenhouse, it's easier to give them some preventative care while they're more susceptible. Mm -hmm. Um, I use, um, some essential oil sprays a couple of times, um, that just kind of prevent them from getting, you know, any infestation while they're small and in trays that would then transplant out. And then after that, you know, it's just kind of being aware, uh, occasionally I'll find a plant that's maybe harvesting a larger population uh, of maybe spider mites. Mm -hmm. Um, I kind of just typically make the call of whether that's going to affect the rest um, enough. Whether you need to cull them or not. Yeah, and that's, for me, I'll take the loss. I'll just, you know, I'll take a plant and remove it from the garden, um, compost it, no
0: problem. Well, it's kind of refreshing to hear that perspective that you know, you're basically looking at it of like, well, I could use all of these resources to try to save as many plants as possible, or I can just take these losses and not expend those resources. And I mean, every situation is different, but I imagine a lot of the times you end up ahead with that perspective anyway. Especially, I mean, because when you're taking more aggressive approaches to pest management, it's not just a money cost, but also a time cost. Mm-hmm. You know, uh, there's yeah. all these, all these expenditures and i i like the idea too of um rethinking about the perspective of the use of the term pest and the same as um like thinking about weeds as well it's like well they're they're pests or they're weeds in the context of how we perceive them and how we humans interact with them but they're just organisms doing their thing and sure you know
1: and we've either you know intruded upon, you know, their natural habitat, or we've created a new habitat that Mm -hmm. is, you know, ideal for uh, them to thrive.
0: Yeah, yep, yeah, yeah.
1: Yeah, and and that's another reason why there's a we'll notice, um, you know, a higher, you know, frequency of and density of plants throughout the farm um, overall. um, Doing about maybe two thousand more plants this year than last year on not Mm. a whole lot more ground. A um, little bit later planting, um, yeah. I, I I prefer a smaller plant um, with hemp in particular. It's um, more manageable for harvesting. That's kind of I think going back to why I choose this style is um, I I am one person managing five thousand hemp plants and mm-hmm. a five acre farm. You know, with vegetables and everything else going on. Um, while you know having kids and a life and and yeah. that whole approach so it's a lot of it is just energy uh time management um to where uh to me it doesn't seem worth the extra time to uh you know do an intensive pest preventative minute mani- uh you know measure yeah so
0: yeah and definitely it's it's really cool hearing about like you're keeping in mind the ecology too like all these you know the gopher snakes. Um, You know roosting hawks i'm sure you've got some owls and stuff around here too um that gets into like some of the non-cannabis stuff that i try to do is environmental education stuff and getting into a lot of Mm -hmm. that of trying to get landowners in general to think broader about the ecology that their land is a part of and how to engage that ecology to allow it to support what you're doing and you support them and of generate a win-win situation rather than having this constant combative attitude towards um you know all the other um creatures that we're sharing sure. our space with
1: yeah and i mean um like you said this isn't the typical hemp farm model that we see um one you know Hemp is quickly becoming a a bulk agricultural commodity, so we see larger farms, more mechanized, huge, huge farms. You know, processes, and um, you know, to be quite honest, I know nothing about managing large scale industrial agriculture. Um, Not something I've ever been particularly, you know, fond of. The models, or interested, you know, in that that large, you know, monoculture. Yeah, I mean, sitting where we are. Looking out across the Rogue Valley, we can see maybe six or seven mm-hmm. uh, large hemp farms that are, you know, 20 plus acres. Very easy to identify either large, you know, squares of black plastic mulch or, uh, you know, brown, you know, tilled up uh, bear plants. Uh, yeah. Sort of thing. So. Well. You
0: know. Yeah. Getting into that, what? What are? Some of your personal concerns regarding kind of where cannabis cultivation seems to be moving toward in general because we all knew that as cannabis laws change whether it be with hemp or with THC rich cannabis um, that it's going to move towards the industrial agricultural kind of traditional model Um, so given your perspective of trying to care for the land and um, preserve um, the quality of Um, the you know productivity of the land and everything what are some concerns that you have about those industrial um, cultivation styles um
1: that I mean the biggest concern is that people aren't taking a lot of that into consideration it's a get rich quick uh, type mentality right now um, with the hemp market booming um, and so there's a lot of opportunity for people to get in kind of before you know the the market maybe either the bubble pops or um you know just there's so much more supply that the costs or that the prices drop yeah um so you see a lot of people rushing in and um you know there's i think there's a lot of people uh farming who don't have the experience um farming to take in you know kind of those factors to think about um in the first place you know the interesting thing i've noticed um you know with hemp in particular is the you know the black plastic mulch uh, approach um you know kind of with the three years ago or so when we were kind of the first year out of our pilot program um you know you saw a couple of of big farms um doing that and then the next year which was last year i suppose mm-hmm. Um, a lot of new farms showed up and it was when I asked new farmers a lot of them from you know moving in from out of state or whatever coming in big firms or you know Mm -hmm. ventures um, seeing the opportunity and asked their farmers why they did plastic mulch um, there was kind of just an assumption of that's how we grow hemp Um, that's how we should do it uh, the plant can't handle a high uh, weed pressure, right? Or it's an easier way to do that um, and uh, One there's not at that point or even at this point. There's not a lot of um, agricultural research on the crop um, But then you know speaking with long-term experienced uh, organic vegetable farmers who have done large acreage of that um You know, whether or not a plant is conducive to a plastic mulch really just depends on the species. You know, there are Mm -hmm. certain plant uh, species that really, really don't do well with with weed pressure. Right, they're slow-growing. It stunts them, totally. They they just freak out. They want to be all by themselves. Um, And so, you know, you can use it selectively. I just don't know that hemp, or I don't agree that hemp really responds that way to that pressure Um, and I've seen that through experience here you know with three years of hemp and you know eight years of cannabis um, uh, where you know I think the plant is so vigorously growing it can outcompete most weeds yeah Um, a lot of there's also the misconception about you know weeds are sucking up all the nutrients that the plants are using Mm. when in fact that's not necessarily true a lot of weeds um actually you know use different forms of um of available nutrient in the soil which is why Mm -hmm. they are so pervasive in poor soils in the first place right that's why they're weedy exactly (laughs) yeah you probably have a better definition of of what that means but um yeah so that's that and then um you know to that end that approach the other thing is you know, a lot of these big farms—they have a lot of money at stake. They've put mm-hmm. in a lot of money. They purchased new farms, new yeah. equipment. Their overhead is so high that there's a fear mentality of not wanting it to fail, which I totally understand. Yep. Um, another reason why I keep my costs as low as possible and accept the, you know, the gain as it is, because mm-hmm. um, that was a lesson I learned many, many years ago with cannabis cultivation back when. Um, you know it was farmed really intensively we poured tons of money into that crop um, and uh, you know I had some years where uh, the profits weren't there due to you know mm-hmm. losses and pests management that kind of thing or just overall market price was dropping and so it kind of forced me to shift that mentality to where I went completely back onto this path and started this whole journey that's kind of led me here over the last six years of like a kind of a more natural, mm-hmm. um, soil building structure, a lot of no-till, hugo mm-hmm. cultures. Um, you know, three years ago I grew my first hemp crop on this land and I didn't, uh, and then the soil at all, I didn't feed the plants any nutrient, anything. It was just a hundred percent native soil and irrigation water. And, um, you know, the plants did fine, you know, they yeah. grew big and strong and, um, did their thing.
0: So. Yeah, and, and I guess some of that too relates to how the cannabis is going to be used at the end as well, because like in medical and recreational cannabis cultivation, if your goal is to sell flower, then you're looking at the plant uh, differently than if the goal is extraction or something else. So for instance, if you're concerned about having pretty buds, um, then you're trying to coax plants to swell up and have these, you know, dense masses of inflorescences, whereas um, like a a lot of hemp, some of it's sold as flower, but a lot of it's getting extracted. Um, And so while you're still worried about resin production, you're not so concerned necessarily about um, having these pristine, beautiful bud structures. Um, I don't know. Is that... Is that something that um that seems to ring true?
1: Yeah, yeah, it does. Um, you know, with uh new cultivation techniques, you know, with growing cannabis on such a large uh scale, the um it really does kind of shift from I, I dislike the term industrial hemp, um which well, is it's what confusing too. It is, but you know, as I've gotten into it over the last few years and, um, and gone a little bigger and a little bigger, it does ring true in, in, in kind of the mentality of the way you're treating the plant, you know, coming from, you know, back when you had, you know, six medical plants and, Mm -hmm. you know, you had to, they were so precious and you had to, uh, you know, really treat them very delicately. And so, you know, to where, Uh, the way things are harvested now and kind of thrown around and just handled much more rough because of the volume of it. Mm -hmm. You couldn't do it out of, in a more delicate fashion. Yeah. Um, You know, a lot of large scale hemp is uh, mechanically harvested, um, whether it's like stripped off the stems in the field or Mm -hmm. uh, we're seeing the advent of a lot of new um, combine headers that are able to, Um, thrash hemp uh, Mm -hmm. biomass off of the stem Um, you know that's it's definitely treated differently um, but it's kind of like a probably a profit and loss type of uh, Mm -hmm. evaluation of you have so much um, material to process and only so much time or so much money and energy Mm -hmm. you know there has to be a way to do that efficiently um, which is really how you know, all of the industrial agriculture has gone, you know, cutting costs and increasing production.
0: Well, with that in mind, do you think that, because it seems like cannabis flower isn't going anywhere as far as demand for it. Like people, there's, there's a strong demand for that, even though the demand for extract is increasing Mm -hmm. rapidly. Uh, Do you think that's going to carve out a niche for, Small farms, family farms, that sort of thing that can put that attention in and attention to quality and uh, pampering and everything. Sure.
1: Yeah, I I think that um, we can we can look at Oregon's recreational um, you know cannabis industry and and we we'll, we can see some similarities there to where you know you and I got to watch that, you know, industry grow from its yeah, infa- yeah. infancy in, uh, in medical through the advent of rec and everything going. And, um, you know, you saw the larger farms, you know, maybe having one or two multiple tier licenses, mm-hmm. you know, growing kind of bigger, a little bit lower quality, you know, mm-hmm. lower cost of production. Um, and, Once the kind of, once the market started to mature and there was a higher, you know, more competition over what's good cannabis and what's, you know, average cannabis or low quality cannabis, um, everything kind of average and lower uh, had a very low price point in flour and a lot of it turned into more extracts to where you have a lot of farms that it's for them it seems to be more profitable to just grow a lower grade product but more of it and mm-hmm. sell it all into mm-hmm. the extract um and edibles and all that kind of stuff and then smaller uh farms that have really honed their craft in um that are able to kind of like really produce that that ultra premium quality um are able to to create a place for them in the market um
0: yeah i think the challenge that we're seeing now is now that the laws are changing and the demand is getting so great. Um, it seems like what the small farms have to figure out is kind of how to work together, maybe in a co-op situation or something to meet the demand, um, to be able to have enough material, uh, to sell, sure. um, to, to meet some of the requirements, um, of some of these areas. Um, it's, it's something I've, I've heard talked about from different people, um, especially in california there's been pushes to try to get you know small farms to come together to form kind of co-op groups that um and you see this model in in broader agriculture as well local farms a lot of times will team up under a sometimes a non-profit entity or some other or a for-profit entity and um everyone's sort of contributing to this pool of a certain quality of product and then um getting the profits, um, appropriately distributed so that they have access to, um, markets that are demanding quite a lot of, um, a lot of material. Um, cause I, I like you said, you and I have seen so much change here in Oregon and we've seen so many farms close up shop so many people that are bailing on farming, um, mm-hmm. that, you know, when we were, um, look at that hawk right there. Is that a hawk
1: that's a turkey vulture
0: oh <laughs>
1: yeah it's uh it's so probably low. gonna go down and try to uh scavenge there was a squirrel caught in the trap that ah. um, i have yet to take <laughs> into the woods and release and it was so it low probably it probably smells just... the yeah the, the eminent death yeah
0: yeah well um but yeah we we saw um So many players in the industry that were making good product and were doing their best to adapt um, to the changing markets, but then prices change, there's a whole lot of competition. Mm -hmm. Um, And so some of those uh, folks have stopped growing, some of them have moved away. Um, And it's sad to see because, you know, cannabis is interesting. I mean, farmers in general are oftentimes uh very passionate about the crops that they grow and being working with the land and being outside and you know there's a reason that they've um chosen to do that work it's not easy work it's extremely hard um and it's it's sad to see some of these small farms you know the people they're having to kind of throw in the towel that can't seem to find a way to make it work financially um, I don't know. Do you have any thoughts on that? Of, of what small farmers can do to stay alive in this sort of rapidly changing environment? Um,
1: I I would say um, you know read some books about running small businesses. Honestly, <laughs> yeah, um, yeah, Not not to you know. There's a lot of a lot of farmers who are who have done good planning. You know, um, financially on on that front. Um, but I think a lot of farms failed because they um, took on too much too fast, uh, mm-hmm. whether it was, you know, double mortgages and a half million oh, yeah, dollar yeah. greenhouse and this and that, um, instead of leveraging what they already had, because maybe they started with nothing. Mm-hmm. Um, so a lot of the farms that I see still around, you know, they were existing farms beforehand. So they were able to utilize what they already had as far as, you know, like assets. Um, uh, and then, you know, I gotta say like, probably like the five or six best, you know, established farms that, that I know of that are still operating today in that recreational market, um, where I could have probably guessed that, you know, five years ago, four years ago, um, that they would have been some of the ones because, mm-hmm. um, they established uh, brand recognition really early on in the market. Um, And they maintained the quality of product throughout that whole Mm -hmm. time. Um, And uh, a lot of them also were highly experienced cannabis farmers for many years before Mm -hmm. and had um, not only uh, environmentally sustainable uh, cultivation techniques, they had financially sustainable cultivation techniques with, you know, more closed looped systems with utilizing their own, um, you know, different, uh, animal, um, you know, husbandry techniques with, with, you know, chickens, cows, all those different things and utilizing that manure and Mm -hmm. creating compost, um, and huge caches of biomass that they could ferment and feed their plants. And, um, you know, when it comes down to the, as the price continues to drop, um, you know, cutting back on all of those expensive inputs yeah um has been really vital and uh but I think brand recognition is probably one of the biggest things yeah. um you know and social media plays a huge part of that in in mm-hmm. Oregon's cannabis um you know a lot of those uh farms that I'm thinking of are, you know have 10 15 20,000 followers on their Instagram account and they really have been dedicated to keeping content fed um, and, you know, people are attracted to seeing their approaches. You know, I, there's, yeah. I've seen it um, for a long time with a lot of them of just like showing, you
0: know. That it's an educational thing. Absolutely. Yeah.
1: And, you know, especially with cannabis, I think you have a large um, uh, large consumer base that is kind of predispos- predisposed to a more organic lifestyle, mm-hmm. uh, more sustainable for the earth type People, and so I think that's why so many of them are attracted to that. Um, and I see that personally with the hemp farm. Um, I don't do a really good job of keeping my um, my social media presence
0: uh, up and going. I've been a little too busy
1: on the farm. Man, yeah, it's so uh, hard.
0: It's, yeah, even the stuff I'm doing, it just sucks so much energy out to try to keep yeah content flowing. But
1: I'm amazed. Um, I get all kinds of uh, feedback from people all over the country um that are just excited to see hemp farms that don't look like Mm -hmm. all the hemp farms that they're seeing um you know sprouting up and um and so that's encouraging and it also creates um you know a wider kind of client base for me to where um you know that's Mm -hmm. where I've drummed up business is um from companies throughout the country that um, they are willing to pay a little bit more premium because mm-hmm. they recognize that it's um, you know costs more to produce this way maybe or, or it's just harder worker and they value the fact that there's actual earth care involved right in that um, right
0: right yeah yeah exactly so and Bring... that's who
1: I would like to work with in anyways and so it's it's fortunate that that I've made those um, connections
0: yeah yeah trying to use your perspective and style and everything you're trying to do as a value added, um, asset to your, to your crop. That's, yeah, that's really important for people to understand. And it takes, some education sometimes to help people recognize that value. Um, and just communicate, just communication, just explaining what you're doing. Mm -hmm. And so that, people realize oh wow I didn't realize that oh um." you know even like looking around when you were talking about weed pressure like I see you know all sorts of um, miscellaneous plants that are growing up in your rows and stuff you don't seem to be very concerned um, I'm not uh,
1: no not particularly Um, I will be doing you know um, you know manual weeding once the planting is done here that will be the next phase to go back through but um, I find that on this scale, you know, one person can, um, can manage, you know, weed management on, you know, two to three acres, um, if you time it right, um, using the right tools, um, uh, there are, we'll go see, there's some sections I do have, um, to, it's fun to see the, uh, the different, um, fluctuations in what weed show up year mm-hmm. after year based on you know what the spring was like what the winter right, was right. like that kind yeah. of a thing so this year we have a particularly high uh density of uh what's known as pigweed yeah um yeah. it does annoy me because one um you'll see it it's in the spots mm-hmm. where it's growing, it's quite literally like a carpet, you know, yeah. many millions and millions of these little seeds sprouting up. They're quite easy to, um, hoe out, you mm-hmm. know, with a, a wheel hoe or a stirrup or, or whatever. Um,
0: Yeah, when you pull out them, they usually come yeah, out of the ground pretty um, easily.
1: You know, but every plant, uh, will grow up and it looks a lot like amaranth mm-hmm. and, and produces millions of seeds mm-hmm. in every head. So it's kind of one of those ones where I, as far as the holistic approach it's not really bothering my plants but if i don't nip it in the butt right. i will continue to increase the population of that that weed right. your community
0: stock. will change yeah. yeah
1: um and honestly the only thing it bothers about me is that they kind of get pokey you mm-hmm. know and then i'm walking through the fields and i'm getting little pokes yeah um and kind of like give you a little splinter sometimes when you stick on um it does bring a lot of birds down into the field. Um, I don't know if those species of birds that eat those seeds might also eat bugs. Maybe they do. Maybe they don't. They definitely poop. I'm sure some do That's at great. least. great. Yeah. Um, you know. So other than that, I have a lot of blackberries. That's another just like long term. Only way to get rid right. of blackberries is to dig out the roots. So.
0: And even then, like if you leave a little piece, like it's yeah. it comes back. Certainly. It's, it's almost a never-ending battle with blackberries. That's particularly these Himalayan blackberries uh, that aren't aren't native here. Um, Let's talk a little bit about kind of going to the front of the process to talk about seeds, hemp seeds. Um, What do you think about when you're evaluating seed suppliers and the quality of seed that you're sourcing? And, you know, this kind of comes from, you know, last year there was a pretty significant issue with hemp seed, at least in... Southern Oregon, um, a lot of farms that got, um, bad batches of seed had some really severe problems. Um, and so one thing I wanted to, uh, make sure to spend some time talking about is just seed quality Mm -hmm. and how people can, um, yeah, evaluate their seed and seed suppliers. Sure.
1: Yeah. So, um, that's something I think we'll see, uh, be an issue, you know, going forward, um, now that the industry is really starting to gain momentum, and we're seeing more and more seed suppliers, um, show up. So, you know, the, um, how to evaluate whether a seed, you know, company is reputable or, you know, proficient in producing seeds. Um, I mean, for me here in Oregon, um, you know, we've seen kind of the, uh, premier seed producer, uh, was you know two years ahead of everyone else when it came to um you know genetic development Mm -hmm. of uh low thc high cbd um cannabis cultivars and that was oregon cbd and the crawford brothers who founded that Mm -hmm. um they saw that opportunity they had experience with seed breeding they also spent a ton of time and money on their um selection their breeding um you know, all their analytical work and they're mm-hmm. growing out in large populations and selecting. Um, Cause what I see, you know, online is I see a lot of um, breeders um, and either they've, you know, produced a few hundred thousand seeds in a grow tent, you know, they mm-hmm. grabbed mm-hmm. a male. A lot of people don't understand general, uh, you know, botany and, and how plant genetics Work right, uh, you know, whether or not, yeah, yeah, like, oh, I took a high CBD male and crossed it with a high CBD female, I will get 100% high (laughs) CBD offspring. Uh, and you know, the other thing in the, the what happened last year, the um, the big seed debacle you're referring to, um, in particular was a you know, several million. Seeds were sold throughout Oregon um, from one farm that produced them off of um, Crawford Genetics. Uh, Essentially, they had uh, female plants, hermaphrodite, in the field and spread male pollen. And those seeds that they produced, they sold as um, feminized. Mm -hmm. They sold them as, you know basically that they were you know th- these the offspring same. were the same as their as their parentage um and there's a couple of you know issues with that uh you know first of all um the crawfords and uh, just like many other um you know vegetable and flower breeders mm-hmm. uh, intentionally only take their uh lines to f1 hybrids right um you know they've taken two uh two plants that are far enough apart um that are expressing a quality and then they've taken the time to breed out those plants to identify that the quality is in fact um a dominant trait that will at a high you know percentage breed for right you know because a lot of you know original cbd uh lineage was like a freak production in um oh you know like somehow we've gotten some feral hemp to you know intermix with the medical, mm-hmm. and then you know one in a hundred seeds actually uh, is producing a high CBD and a high like resin content. Mm-hmm. Um, and then that lineage was bred with and worked off of yeah. over time. Um, but you know with F1 hybrids, essentially, you've taken two things that are far apart, but have a, two, both have you know single or very few. Uh, a dominant trait, mm-hmm. and when you cross those two together in their F1 generation, they will right, right. they will pass along their their dominant trait to the offspring in a high frequency.
0: Right, you'll see a nice blending of those traits. Exactly. That you want to tease out. Right. There's more. Now,
1: if you take, yeah, uh, sorry. <laughs> if you take uh, those seeds from that F1 population, and you were to, uh, you know, breed with them further. Mm Uh, whether you've selected a new male or a new female, or you have an open pollination, you know, scenario where the males and the females get to breed. Um, now in your F2 generation, you're going to start to see a lot of diversity in, you know, plant traits that were in the DNA of those plants all along. Mm -hmm. But, um, you know, in that first step down in the F1, uh, they didn't express all of those more recessive traits and, um, so that's essentially what happened there, and so the the, yeah. the seeds that were sold, um, you know, they, that particular one was a lot of fraud and misrepresentation by some bad actors in particular, um, and also just a lack of understanding, you yeah, know, of how that yeah. how that works um, and gets passed on. So, so going... those were F two seeds that were yes sold. Yeah. Yes, uh, also produced out of a hermaphrodite um, yeah. pollen, which can you know has all kinds of other implications of whether how that will affect you know the Mm -hmm. the generations downstream so um with reputable seed breeders that you need to make sure that they actually have um the science backing up what they're claiming Mm -hmm. um And you know, not just
0: random test results from a previous crop, sure, it's it's high CBD.
1: Yeah, I think the biggest thing for me is I want to know how long they've been developing the lines that they are selling Mm -hmm. Um, because this type of work takes multiple generations. You can only grow a plant up to maturity and pollinate it and produce seeds so many times Mm -hmm. a year, you know, even if you're going rapidly, maybe four times a year, right? Um, So, you know, um, to know that they've done multiple generations of work on that that lineage is important um you know the other the fact besides high cbd um you know ratios and low thc um there's also the feminization factor mm-hmm. uh, feminization can be done in a few different ways of uh, essentially you know stressing the plant um And some of those are more effective than others and and produce a higher Mm -hmm. feminization rate. Um, The best seed producers are going to, you know, share with you feminization rates. They're going to stand behind their feminization rates. Mm -hmm. And they should be 99.85 plus if they've done it right. Oh, wow. Um, And, uh, you know, a lot of them will, you know, show you their their proof of that you know Mm -hmm. through testing with controls and and it's a dna test that they're able to do um through tissue so that they can do that pretty quickly on on each generation um so you know it's exciting that there's going to be a deeper genetic pool available to farmers you know year by year Mm -hmm. um uh it's not a good you know in my opinion system to kind of have any one company have a monopoly on that yes Uh, however as a as a farmer you don't want to take a risk um in having you know one you know if you grow out a population that has too high of a THC level you're going to fail your uh department of agriculture pre-harvest test and then your whole crop is invaluable yeah um so there's that um so you know seed companies should be very transparent. Um, so, you know, they shouldn't shy away from questions about, yeah. you know, um, how long they've been developing that seed line. Uh, have they done large field trials on those genetic, um, that particular lineage? Um, and you know, for me, that, the, the seeds that I went with this year, um, came from a company that um was new to Oregon um they had been developing this line for you know they had it for over three years grown in Colorado so I was able to uh, confirm that it was you know it had created successful crops right um the uh It also helped that the breeder themselves are, you know, growing over 12,000 acres of their own seed in several countries. Yeah. Um, So they'd stand behind it um, on top of that. And, you know, essentially you, you should be able to ask them for a guarantee that it is what they're saying. Mm -hmm. And if they don't give you that, I would, you know, shy away from that.
0: Yeah. So. Yeah. No, that makes, makes perfect sense. And there's, you know, if you are dealing with a sketchy seed supplier, then you also have to absorb more cost on yourself to do greater quality control. Because if you don't quite trust a seed provider, then you're going to want to do germination tests on your own. You're going to want to do sex testing on your own um, to make sure that you know things are what you're expecting them to be. And that all cost time and money. Um, and then gosh when things go wrong some of these farms I saw last year so many males that came through and uh, for anyone listening that maybe is new to cannabis and doesn't understand that you know you're when you're growing cannabis for resin content you're dealing with female plants you do not want male plants and you do not want your female plants to get pollinated and start producing seed uh, because that's going to impact resin production and so um, there were farms just pulling massive amounts of males. And then the F2 thing on the, on the analytical side, um, that I have more experience with is it was fascinating as, um, you know, an analytical science guy to see the, uh, chemotypical diversity mm. in these plants that were grown out from these F2 seeds. Right. Um, every single ratio under the sun I was hearing about and seeing and in some cases testing and um, high CBD you know one-to-ones three-to-ones two-to-ones four-to-ones high THC uh, that had to be cold like it was just this massive massive headache um it but it was but it was super super fascinating for me just seeing that diversity and just being like wow look at (laughs) <laughs> you know all of that right. that potential that's it, there the it,
1: potential yeah that's i mean like it's it's
0: it's it's, it's definitely, exciting
1: on that level of like wow look at this amazing new genetic pool that we've mm-hmm. uncovered but from you know the farmer side doesn't see the value in it yeah um because i mean from a monetary value maybe it's not there right um right you know right. but from a, a knowledge base it's it's pretty cool um to see that
0: yeah, 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 totally. Yeah. Um wh- Oh,
1: go, one last thing about the seed thing. The, the yeah. biggest incentive that farmers might get swayed into purchasing, you know, less than than amazing seed is cost. Um seed cost is one of the bigger factors in hemp farming. Um, you yeah. know, quality yeah. hemp seeds typically sell for a dollar a piece. Wow. Um a dollar per seed. A dollar right. per seed, maybe starting to get some discount when you get into the tens or hundreds of thousands of seeds. Um wow. you know, so for a farm I mean looking across the street here there's 11 mm-hmm. acres. They're probably planting around 2000 plants an acre, so that's 22,000 seeds. Um assuming that they bought an extra maybe 10% of seed needed. Right just in case they didn't have a perfect germination they you know it would have cost them twenty six thousand dollars in seed just to get started and so you know for a farm when they're offered seed at 50 cents a piece that right. can be you very know, enticing it, exactly and that's um you know where it is and, and i a lot of farms came in this year that i know where they tried you know that they, they, they small farms so they don't have a lot of money to put up yeah. you know so they went with what was available and I hope it works out for them.
0: Yeah, yeah, totally. There's so many dynamics um, influencing the way that people farm. Um, And it's it's certainly hard because, you know, when you've dumped all of this money into seed, well, then you've got that pressure to make that money back. Then that leads into pressures like going back to what we were talking about earlier with like pest management and everything. You're like, well, I can't afford to lose any of this crop, yeah, because uh, I need to make this money back. And so then you feel this additional pressure to invest even more to ensure that all of those plants make it through, and it's just it just heightens this tension in the farming process. Yeah, and, and it it you know it's interesting
1: that we've come into a model where farmers are dependent on a seed supplier; they're not able to. Uh, at this point, um, you know, the, the genetic pool that's available in order for them to, uh, you know, succeed in the regulatory environment as is, um, you know, at some point down the line, um, I think we'll have stabilized, um, you know, hemp cultivars mm-hmm. that um, really, truly will continue to breed low THC Um, plants so at that point farmers can actually uh, produce some of their own seed either in controlled plots Um, the other interesting thing you know as it becomes a larger agricultural commodity and the price overall goes down and it becomes more about like how much can you grow for how little um, you'll find more farms that are less concerned about seed in their biomass Mm -hmm. um I know of a uh, 3,800-acre farm in eastern Oregon that's planting uh, male-female seed because they were 20 cents a piece, and they're planting, you know, like 15 million seeds or something. Wow. Um, And they're direct seeding them into the ground at 12-inch spacing. Mm -hmm. It'll all be combined. They don't care that it's going to be full of seed because all of it's going to get ground up, Mm -hmm. and all of it's going to be sold at the lowest possible, you know, bulk pricing. Um, you know, they're not trying to get into the premium hemp right. market. They're just, you know, able to grow it at a yep. lower cost at a higher thing. And, it, and then they look at their, their margin and, and it makes sense for them. Um, and uh, as the extraction science continues to improve, that becomes less of an issue. I mean... Uh,
0: right, you can remove anything that you don't want. Yeah, in the uh, hemp
1: seed oil is is interesting in when it comes into... Extraction. Um, It, from my experience, um, and uh, side note, I work uh, part time at a larger hemp extraction facility here, so I do a lot of um, work in that field as well. So. when we process lots that have a high density or or high percentage of hemp seed, Mm -hmm. especially if that seed has been cracked open through a mechanical combine or threshing, Mm -hmm. um, it produces a lower quality oil that requires a lot more work to, uh, you know, clean up and get it into that higher quality product, um, that can move through the downstream processes. And it's interesting, um, uh, I don't know if, if any of your other podcasts you've talked about extraction too much, but not too much yet. Man. So, you know, it, what's interesting about hemp seed oil, and I don't know enough um, chemistry, you know, of the different types of, um, you know, lipids and mm-hmm. um, fatty acids, and, fatty acids and, and, and all that stuff, and polysaccharides and, and transglycerides. But mm-hmm. with hemp seed oil, it does not, uh, it tends to be picked up even at a um, cold temperature with our solvent, which is what we're doing. And, um, And then it's more difficult to uh, get that to precipitate out through the winterization process. Yeah. Um, And it's really interesting. You can quite literally feel it in the oil. It has a bit of a grease to it. Greasiness, yeah,
0: yeah, yeah. I've I've seen that. um,
1: And then, you know, that oil, uh, we have a harder time. If you don't get it cleaned up, we can't do the distillation because it creates this violent reaction and all that kind of stuff. So large uh, industrial um, hemp processors have figured out, you know, ways to do that they've you know the mechanical engineers and the chemical engineers are now a part of it it's not a bunch of people saying they're scientists and they're trying to invent new science we've got real um (laughs) real industry knowledge saying oh yeah you know petroleum distillation or canola you know distillation okay we can do this this is easy no problem yeah Um, so it's cool to see that going so yeah the model it's interesting to see how it's going to shift over time but you know where I was going with that is, uh, it'll it'll be cool when um, you know, sense amelia or seedless hemp is not necessarily the only way. Right. Um, and then on the other side of that, uh, you know, we talk about hemp being this crop that can save the world and save the planet. Will. Um, you know, high CBD hemp is probably not that crop, uh, you know, right? it's, right. it's wonderful. The, um, the, the medical benefits of that, um, of that plant and the medicine is amazing. Um, but, uh, until we start to utilize the plant in its high fiber, um, high food in the oil and the mm-hmm. seed, um, until we actually get there, um, you know, I don't know that, Personally, I don't see, you know, monocropped plastic mulched hemp as being all that sustainable for the earth. Um, so it'll be cool once we shift yeah. away from, um, obviously it means like this high CBD uh, industry is going to have to devaluate to get farmers to be incentivized to grow something that maybe only makes purposes. like five or $6,000 an acre instead of 10 right. times that. Uh, but once we do get to that, I think we'll really see some some really cool things come out of this plant.
0: Yeah, and I'd love to see more uh, experiments with. Um, I mean, there's so many different things you can do with different parts of the plant. But like the hempcrete stuff is mm-hmm. is really interesting. Building houses with using the um, parts of the hemp plant as as part of this building matrix. Um, there was a home in North Carolina that was built and permitted. Yeah, um, and I think one recently in Washington, uh, if I'm not mistaken, I. I see these headlines. I don't. It's hard to keep track of them. But more and more, seeing stuff with that and um, using um, hemp seed and uh, materials as agricultural feed. There's all sorts of of different things. Um, even different uses for seed oils, yeah, um,
1: and we just see those crops being grown throughout the world,
0: right, um, right, know, right, and, right. and uh, especially and so, in like uh, Eastern Europe and stuff. Yep, you and Canada and things like yeah. that.
1: And and the way those uh, there, they're regulated where their overall cannabinoid content has to be pretty low, anyways. Right. Um. Again, you go into the whole like kind of genetic seed property you know patenting things where a lot of countries there's only so many permitted seed suppliers and seed sources Mm -hmm. so farmers only have a a few choices of what they can grow and and um, you know so so economically maybe that's harming those areas you know that they're not able to switch into this particular crop Um, but you know talking with a a friend of mine who um, owns a company called hemp technologies and they build hempcrete um, houses. They produce um, different forms of hempcrete, hemp plastics, things like that. Um, and they're, you know, growing in eleven different countries, and they've been in it for quite a Excellent. long time. Um, but I, you know, he is interested in finding a way to utilize the byproduct um, hemp stock from mm-hmm. high CBD hemp. Um, but you know, I, I, he I don't remember his exact metrics on on how much it produces, but. Um, you know this type of uh plant spacing and and everything uh the amount of actual like hemp curd uh which would be like the ground up fiber of yeah. the stock that's produced per acre and then the actual value of that by the metric ton is is so low that mm-hmm. there's not a lot of incentive for any of these farmers to utilize that byproduct mm-hmm. you know um the amount of energy it might take them to, you know, earn an extra few thousand dollars by taking, you know, 15, 20 acres worth of stock and get Mm -hmm. it all ground up and everything. For most people, it's just not there yet. Yeah. So
0: what do you think about um, with all of these big hemp farms, like you were talking about, that don't necessarily care so much about seed content and all of that? How is that driving with, you know the farms that do care about ensuring that all of their plants are seedless and high resin um, I would imagine in these really huge farms um, they're not pulling males that or you know not pulling a lot of them. Um, or yeah not, even not... if
1: they're making their best effort there's a higher Exactly chance. there's just no yeah. way they're sure. going to get
0: them all um, so there's got to be as the hemp industry gets booming more and more there's got to be more pollen in the air and that pollen can travel pretty far. Um, there's some debate over exactly how far and exactly how big of an issue that Quite is. Quite a debate, yeah. Um, but um, I think it's everyone can pretty much agree that it's, it's an issue that um, is contentious and um, is... I don't know. I, I, it seems like the hemp thing is moving so fast, um, and I haven't seen a good resolution between how... These different types of cannabis farmers can coexist um, without the really large farms kind of uh, ruining things for some of those the others that are really ensuring everything's um, high quality seedless mm-hmm. high resin what are your thoughts on that
1: um, it's a really contentious issue yeah and it has been um, the you know for the entirety of Oregon's um, hemp industry uh, to the point where you know the first year that oregon allowed pilot uh you know hemp farms to to register and you know there was a few dozen of them throughout Mm -hmm. the state yeah um you know southern oregon has such a ingrained um and large uh medical recreational high thc um right growing industry that um you know there was a couple of people in the Applegate who wanted to to try growing an acre or two of hemp and they were quite literally threatened
0: I remember that yeah Yeah. that
1: that they would you know be screwing everything up for all the other farmers and that their, you know essentially their fields were going to burn down if they planted them and uh and then you know the next year we got some people who were willing to take the risk and really tried to push the education of like look I'm Growing all female plants because that's, you know, beneficial to my hemp farm. Like right. I'm not going to, you know, that. And then it got bigger and bigger to the scale where it's hard to keep up with that quality management and quality control. And yeah, um, you know, legally it's really contentious and difficult. There are numerous lawsuits throughout Oregon about, um, you know, economic harm done by a hemp sure, farm yeah. whose pollen drifted into a rec farm, um, or even there's hemp farms suing other hemp farms for it. Mm-hmm. There's uh, um, hemp breeding uh, facilities, you know, suing other hemp farms for it because it's contaminating their crop. And, and um, yeah, it's, um, you know, for me personally, uh, not only is it important for my own uh, success in this crop to eliminate males and pollen, um, but just as a um, I don't know, moral or whatever, uh, how
0: responsibility the, responsibility to where yeah you are, to your ethics, community
1: to yes to the other farms that exist around me. Um, I don't want to do any harm to anyone else um, just for my own personal gain. Um, and uh, so. Yeah. I mean, I, I think it's right now it, it should be the responsibility for farmers to do everything in their care to limit their uh, effect on those around them. Um, it's like I said, it, it's really contentious. There's not a lot that can be done legally to prevent people Oregon's yeah. right to farm laws are pretty strict. Right. Um, there might be some zoning things that might end up happening with different counties, different places. Um yeah uh it's pretty difficult
0: yeah yeah and maybe it'll just be something that settles out culturally that maybe there will be um areas where people care less um about that and maybe that's where some of these farms end up settling into and other places where it's a much more sensitive issue that they tend to stay away from just because of the um, interpersonal dynamics between sure. neighbors and yeah, you know. and I mean, right
1: now in Oregon, there's nothing that prevents a hemp farmer from getting a license to grow hemp for seed and for fiber right on acreage, mm-hmm. um, whether or not their neighbor next to them is trying to grow, you know, feminized seedless hemp or not. Um, and that's where a lot, as far as I know, there hasn't been a legal precedent set in yeah. Oregon towards that. Um, it's pretty, pretty going to be a, a few years before all those happen. And then there'll be appeals and all right, that kind of stuff. Yeah. Cause there is quite a bit of money at stake. And so, um, you know, yeah, yeah, there are, I mean, the, the seed example we were speaking of resulted in a $28 million lawsuit. Yeah. Um, that I believe disappeared. I don't really, I didn't follow it. Yeah. Um, I didn't hear long. anything
0: else about it. Um, after the original press. Yeah. Uh, maybe it got settled. I don't know. But, um, yeah, it's, It'll be interesting to see how that all that all settles out. It's been on my mind a lot, seeing some of these just massive hemp farms, and it's just like you know, I mean, it's just technically impossible for them to manage. Yeah, uh, and I've heard you
1: know, there's um, there's going to be new developments in the industry and in the farming techniques. Um, you know, there's theories that maybe you know, there's. Uh, either biological or chemical products that could be given to plants to prevent them from you know sh- basically if they were males they wouldn't be able they'd be sterile right, uh, right i don't know about if whether or not that's something that could will be developed anytime soon or, or really even could be uh and then even um i've heard of people trying to develop like drone technology that could uh detect mm-hmm. males yeah yeah um i I've
0: heard some people talking about that
1: which would yeah. be cool uh it, it'd be quite an interesting sensor um what they're picking up on other than once there's already pollen
0: maybe they could do that yeah Uh, Yeah, i mean maybe there's some sort of corollary they can pick up on that's um that with some reasonable degree of confidence they can uh, correlate to males i don't know um the drone technology is interesting because it's gotten really big in broader agriculture for things like nitrogen deficiency and uh, water deficiencies and that sort of thing but yeah, that, that kind of stuff and... is generally uh, from my understanding and my understanding is limited uh, but it seems like that's a lot of that's color based um, looking for certain color changes in the crops that would indicate certain types of stresses nutrient deficiencies and everything mm-hmm. and because you know these cameras can detect they're so sensitive and the different colors they can differentiate um, that you can get pretty sophisticated with that yeah with detecting males I, I just don't know um it'll be cool to see if something can be developed but even then i wouldn't have a strong confidence that it's going to catch everything right and you, you know you still run into these issues and i haven't seen and maybe it's just not even viable but like tissue culturing um but even with that you c- with cannabis you can stress a plant to the point where you know even if you've um cloned female plants um you could still stress them to the point where they'll hermaphrodite or something and uh cause problems
1: yeah and that's um you know another thing we should you know kind of talk about with with seed breeding and and the genetics right now there's um a lot of the um you know larger scale seed production and breeding in oregon is happening uh indoors or happening in greenhouse environments um, and with the plant, it's interesting you will see different um, different expressions you know based on uh, light, photoperiod mm-hmm. environmental yeah, factors yeah, yeah. you know that we hear in cannabis you know that or in, in horticulture the term land race um used, which essentially means a, a plant species that's like naturalized over many generations to mm-hmm. that particular environment that's right. the way it likes to grow and express itself and the mm-hmm. types of you know chemotypes that it that it will express during those environments will you know in in Cannabis cultivation, you know, you would hear people talking about, oh, I've taken this sub Saharan African land race and I can't wait to grow it out in my <laughs> tropical greenhouse here <laughs> in southern Oregon. Yeah. And um yes, it will be a very unique plant. It's different than what has been developed around here. Will it express itself the same way it did growing, you know, in its right. kind of like ancestral? Mm-hmm. This is the way, you know, what it no, it won't. No. Um, and so with, with hemp breeding, um, I think uh, as we've seen the increase in production, we, we've seen a little shift in variation, uh, a little bit less um, uniformity in, in even some of the larger scale um, production facilities. Um, you know, for instance, just with Oregon CBD, they're grown, uh, they do large field trials, but they're in the Willamette Valley. Um, so, you know, a big point for them is uh keeping the overall um flowering time shorter to Mm -hmm. avoid the uh kind of later fall storms and rains that come into that area which down here in southern oregon are typically come even later it's Mm -hmm. a much more arid environment here um now their their genetics seem to do wonderfully here but um you know, what mm-hmm. if they were bred to allow themselves two more weeks of flowering into that later October sun mm-hmm. that we typically get here? Um, you might see
0: more uh, more optimal plant development um, right. through then that. Then you extrapolate that to all these different places where hemp's being grown across mm-hmm. the country, across sure. the world, and yep. all these environments are different. When we were walking through the fields earlier, we were talking about um, what some of the hemp farmers are going through in, um, like, areas in the southeast like in Tennessee or North Carolina, these areas where they get, you know, where it's humid and they're getting much more precipitation. Sure. They've got hurricane seasons. Yeah. Um, and um, one, uh, there's already some research um, that shows that that has influences on chemotypes um, that just even humidity can... Uh, change uh, some of the chemical expressions in the plant, um, but also just uh, some of the different stressors that the plant's going to encounter while growing, like having to tolerate flooding. Mm-hmm. Uh, whereas, uh, you know, here in Southern Oregon, that's something you will never worry about pretty much, except for late in the season. But right. even then, you know, it's nothing like you know what I would experience growing up in Mississippi or what you know, like North Carolina would experience during hurricane seasons or Louisiana. Um, where you're getting severe, severe washout flooding um, consistently. Mm -hmm. Um, And, you know, so farms are having to rethink um, how to grow hemp in those areas, having to make really tall mounds that can hopefully survive that kind of flooding and trying to find cultivars that can maybe be a little more tolerant to humid conditions and flooding. And then you get into, like... Uh, microbiological issues with higher humidity, right? And um, you know, having issues with mold and and all of that. Um, so it's, yeah, it's interesting. It's a good point to bring up that it's, um, you know, cannabis like any plant, it's not a one size fits all kind of model. It's not so simple to just find a cultivar that, based on the history of what that cultivar has done somewhere totally differently, that you think you're going to recreate it. Um, you're going to run into all sorts of challenges, and over time. Um, those genetics will naturalize to where you are. Um, yep. If you're breeding, um, you'll get uh, a new uh, naturalized little gene pool for your area. And, and that's something I um, saw some when I was at the University of Mississippi and, uh, and got some tours and talked to the researchers at the, um, the cannabis lab there, um, is that over the decades of growing cannabis... They grow a lot indoor, but they do outdoor as well on certain years. And um, they've had to go through some learning curves to understand um, some differences there. And, of course, there's all sorts of controversy about what you can extrapolate from the University of Mississippi's um, cannabis program um, and how it relates to cannabis breeding broadly. But um, there's definitely some some good data that um, they're learning um, just about. Like I was saying, how humidity affects chemotypes and stuff like that, that Mm -hmm. um, will become apparent in the next several years as more and more states in the southeast are growing cannabis. Um, Well, we've been going for a little over an hour now. Um, This has been awesome. Um, I'm going to go ahead and um, kind of wrap things up. Uh, One question I really like to ask every guest is um, getting outside of cannabis completely uh, for a minute. What is something totally non-cannabis related um, that has you interested or excited? Something non-cannabis related that has. Yeah, it can still be farming related or anything like that, but um, just not necessarily hemp or cannabis.
1: Um, it's kind of hard to step out of my sure fully sure, consumed yeah. cannabis mind because <laughs> the last uh, few weeks of planting is just kind of wake up and and get things done and and do all of that um oh okay well this is easy because i can stick with farming there you go um, i'm excited i'm doing i'm working with a local um organic seed uh producer here in in southern oregon doing some seed trials for, um, a few different varieties of, uh, squash, um, corns, oh. beans, um, quinoa, amaranth, um, some melons. And so we've interplanted a lot of those in hemp rows. Um, one, just to see you know, the, the, the interaction mm-hmm. there, but also knowing just from last year, I grew a ton of beans and potatoes and corn. Um, potatoes and corn right up next to the cannabis, maybe they all got a little crowded, mm-hmm. um, but I did a lot of um, pumpkins, a lot of um, storage pie pumpkin varieties throughout the field. And uh, our farm has a nice slope, so everything kind of naturally wants to drift on down yep. through the rows, which is really nice. Um, so, you know, I think what excite me is one, um, you know, getting to work with other plants is, is exciting seeing, mm-hmm. um, being able to show, uh, kind of like a, a more polyculture type mindset with hemp, um, for people to understand that, you know, there's so much, so much earth, uh, and soil, Uh, available in a lot of these fields that could be used for something else beneficial and that it benefits the other crop. I don't know. I'm crossing back into hemp.
0: No, that's good uh, though. Yeah. But yeah, yeah,
1: I'm excited to see. I mean, we've got um, some, um, some melon varieties from like the Caucasus Mountain region. Hmm. Uh, We've got um, uh, Guatemalan black amaranth. Um, we've got, uh, Cheyenne white flower corn. Um, we've got an Italian pole bean, and these are all heirloom direct from those bioregions. And what wow. we're doing is seeing what happens here on the first year of cultivation in our area, how they react, what do they, you know, mm-hmm. um, What can we do? Because one, we want to preserve those. And particularly with the um, with the corn, um, we are, you know, going to be contributing the um, the profits that we can we can generate from the corn seed um, from that. A a large portion that will go back to the particular reservation that that was shared to us with. So it's like getting to help in that way. Um, and then just seeing, you know, especially with corn, uh, is and, and many, so many vegetable species, you know, the diversity is just disappearing so quickly. So yeah, anything yeah. that we can do to preserve it, you know, um, for me, I can find so much value and beauty in the fact that things are different than everything else. Mm-hmm. Okay. Maybe this corn didn't grow as big of ears or as tall, mm-hmm. or the beans didn't have as many fruit sets. Well, and I understand why in a high production, you know, type of of cultivation. That's, that's important. They want uniformity. They want the big ones. They want the juicy ones. Um, but we've bred so much, um, you know, nutrition out of Mm -hmm. our, out of our food because all we cared about was how fast they grew or how big they grew or how little Mm -hmm. nitrogen we had to feed them that, um, you know, you're eating a lot of water that doesn't contain (laughs) as much nutrient in there as it should. and so you know growing nutrient dense food and uh and trying to like preserve as much of that in the world is really important and exciting for me yeah um you know for any small farmer adaptability is key over the years um and I'm just kind of starting out fortunately I got to start out with hemp being available and hemp Mm -hmm. is uh, you know a nice uh bumper crop and and can earn money but um you know, I can't not look into the future and think about, you know, it might mm-hmm. be a year, it might be two years before hemp is not as uh, much of a viable crop for me. Um, and I need to, you know, diversify if I want to continue farming, Yeah, which I do cause I hate working other jobs. Farming's the best job <laughs> there is. So, yeah.
0: Um, but you know, figuring out a way to do that, um, especially on days like this, man, it feels amazing. Yeah. It's pretty it's, nice. It's been a an amazing summer here in Southern Oregon so far, pretty mild, uh, temperatures, really uh, mild. Yeah, yeah. Just being able to sit out here, it feels so comfortable. It's, it's crazy. Um, oh yeah. And, and from my perspective too, something that I want to do eventually whenever I have the resources is, you know, these less common varieties of, um, uh, vegetables ethnobotanicals broadly however mm. people use them as well as native plants you know trying to give these plants some attention and do some research understand what uh, biochemically you know they're composed of and what sort of value we can draw um, from those to try to get some support behind um, maintaining those genetics um, mm-hmm. I think that to get, support broadly for that kind of conservation, I think that um, you kind of have to take a sort of human-centric approach because so many people, that's what they connect to. They don't necessarily care so much about uh, things that don't seem to affect them directly, even though it all affects them indirectly. Um, And so I think being able to connect people with uh, multiple ways to value these uh, the genetic diversity is, is something I definitely want to be a part of, try to find out what, what chemical compounds are in these things and bringing attention to, uh, you know, the importance of protecting genetic diversity to protect um, diversity of nutrition, diversity of medicine, um, all these different things. And then stacked on top of that, you know, the ecological uh, um, components, like what are these plants do in their environments that aren't so clear to us because we we see things from a certain narrow uh, perspective Mm -hmm. um, and don't always see the broader picture of um, the ecological functions that different types of of plants play into systems and um, yeah just trying to to tease all of that out I have an ultimate dream and I hope we get to work together doing it one day but having like a a nice like natural products research center where we can do some farming, grow out some diversity of of plants of all sorts, have cannabis be part of that, um, but, you know, get way beyond that and um, be able to connect people very directly to the importance of preserving uh, biodiversity broadly. Uh, Because biodiversity is in such rapid, rapid decline, um, and it's something that we don't feel the effects of immediately, but there will come a tipping point where we will feel them very, very directly, and then it'll be too late. Mm -hmm. Um, And so that's that's something that definitely, um, yeah, definitely very passionate about. Well, uh, you've been super, super, super generous with your time here. I appreciate um, you uh, carving out the time to sit down and chat about hemp and farming and sustainable cultivation and everything else. And uh, yeah, I look forward to um, walking around a little bit more on the farm and, um, hopefully I can get back out here soon and help you some more and talk some more and keep at it. Yeah.
1: I'd, uh, I'd love to have you out again and, uh, maybe we can, um, if you have, uh, you know, listeners who are interested, we can go over some more specific, um, techniques, you know, for sustainable agriculture and, um, the ways that, you know, I've, um, you know, been shared with me and that I've discovered uh, to lessen the uh, overall footprint, um, yep. you know, while working with this plant and others.
0: Yeah, yeah. If you're listening and you're interested in us trying to make some content about um, all of these different sustainable cultivation techniques, um, let us know. Um, and, you know, as always, if you want to support the work that I'm trying to do here with the podcast as well as, um, you know, broadly with, Uh, some of my science education stuff. We have a Patreon account that you can become a member for as little as a dollar and get access to um, behind-the-scenes content, video content for these interviews, get access to full interviews before they're publicly posted, um, and as well as um, I try to give our patrons opportunities to provide feedback, help me understand uh, ways we can make our content better, and even contribute to things like editing, um... And so whatever ways that I can try to get the community involved in trying to make some good educational content here. Um, so you can find that at Patreon.com slash Natural Learning Enterprises. Um, natural Learning Enterprises is the science education company behind all of the work that I'm doing. And um, yeah, I'll definitely be out soon. Um, you can learn more about the Curious About Cannabis podcast at CACpodcast.com. Uh, You can connect with us on social media, on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. Um, We also have a YouTube channel where clips of some of these interviews uh, will be posted. Um, Just search for Curious About Cannabis on YouTube and you'll find us there. Thanks so much for listening and take it easy. If you want to learn more about cannabis, you can check out the Curious About Cannabis book. Available now on Amazon.com and other online book retailers. The Curious About Cannabis podcast is presented by Natural Learning Enterprises, a science education company dedicated to the enhancement of public scientific literacy through education about the natural world. Curious About Cannabis is just one of several learning initiatives produced by Natural Learning Enterprises. To learn more, go to www.naturallearningenterprises.com or connect with NLE on Facebook, Instagram, or Twitter.